Good morning, church. Of course, autumn arrived this week, and with it, some things have changed and many things have not. And as I was reflecting, not just on the change of seasons, uh, but on the long protracted season in which we have lived for these past 18 months, I found myself Googling around a little bit on the internet, uh, looking for observations about what we've learned and what we're still learning during the pandemic. And I, I listed out some of the ones that really struck me, where I resonated and thought, yeah, that. That feels really true, true in our own home, true in our spiritual home here in the church, maybe true for you. And I thought I'd list out some of them. So here are nine of those lessons learned from the pandemic. The first, and uh, I expect there'll be some nodding heads with this, family matters. Family matters more than we had realized And if there is a gold nugget that we take forward from these past hard years, maybe it's this, that that we'll not take it for granted the way sometimes we have. It's no accident that God created us in families. So what have we learned? That adult kids are okay, and that having them home is a wonderful gift. That spouses and partners and dear friends are critical to our well-being. That family, after all is said and done, may turn out to be the best medicine of them all. So that was the first thing, that family matters more than we realized. Here's the second, that loneliness hurts more than we thought. And that hurts not just single adults or older adults, But it's hurt us all, that we all bear the scars and the wounds and the marks of prolonged isolation. In dealing with loneliness, here's a third thing that we've learned, that self-care is not self-indulgence, that this is an important part of what it means to be a human being, that in fact, this is the place where the golden rule turns inward. In order to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, we have to, we have to be invested in doing good, careful things in the maintenance of our own lives and our own soul. So self-care is not self-indulgence. Here's a fourth, and, and you know this is true because you're watching it on the internet this morning. We have befriended technology in whole new ways, and there is no going back. And that's a good news story for some. It's a hard news story for some. But let me say that for the church, what it's given us is a much broader canvas on which to paint and demonstrate the artistry of God. And I will be forever grateful for those who have schooled us in the use of technology and for those of you who have invested the time in learning it. It has been a wondrous gift in the life of God's church. Here's a fifth thing, that work and worship are anywhere now. And maybe maybe we sort of thought that before, but it's certainly a point that has been drilled home. We've always paid lip service to the idea that the church of God is not the same as the building in which the church meets, that we are more than just our buildings. But worship really has exploded over the past 18 months, and and it's happening everywhere. 
It's happening there in your home, in your living room, around your dining room table. Work and worship is anywhere now. And we are more than our buildings. However, and this is a sixth thing, our buildings, they're still kind of important, aren't they? Being together in person, in a location, is important. And if we've missed anything, we've missed that. And so here's a sixth observation. And maybe there's longing in it, but there's also a cautionary note. Sixth thing, the crowds will return. The crowds will return. I mean, isn't that a good news story? The crowds will return, but we will gather carefully. And increasingly, we have the sense that this pandemic will not end with bells tolling or with a ticker tape parade. But as we gradually ease back with some degree of reticence and some degree of comfort into new routines, and I say new routines because I don't think we can expect the same old, same old when we return. One of the things that I shared with our leadership at our meeting this week was an observation that has come out of the Barna Institute, but something that we've been monitoring really closely here in the life of our own church family at MCBC. It's, it's being called the 2020 factor. And here it is, that as we emerge from the pandemic and as we look around at the gathered family of God, we're going to notice some things. We'll notice probably that that 20% or more of the people who would call this their church home are no longer with us. And all kinds of reasons why. I moved geographically, uh, I moved spiritually, uh, lots of reasons. But we're going to be aware of the absence of some longtime friends. On the other side, 20% of those who are gathering with us are going to be brand new. And you're going to look around and say, Who is that? Uh, Who are these people? Uh, What is it that God is up to? Because MCBC feels like a very different church. And so as we emerge from the pandemic, the crowds will return and we'll gather carefully and we'll get to know the new family of God in this place. Here's a seventh lesson from the pandemic. And And I say this recognizing that there is pain in it for many of us. Our trust in one another has frayed. Our trust has frayed, and we're going to have to work hard to see that it is slowly restored. This pandemic has introduced new fault lines in society and in the church. And we're going to have to work hard pray hard, strain ahead in order to preserve the unity of God's church. And I say God's church because it's not ours. And when we're tempted to believe that it's only ours, then suddenly our will, our way, our desire about all these things that have divided society up into quarters, masks and non-masks, vaccines and not vaccines, too much government control, not enough regulation, all these things have a way of infecting and polluting the body. It's God's church. And if our trust in one another has frayed, we're going to need to work hard to see it restored. Let me say this, just to shift gears entirely. One of the things that I hope you have learned, that we certainly have learned, 
is that when the world gets small, and it has for most of us, when the world gets small, nature, God's creation, still lets us live large. Having come through the spring and the summer season, I hope you have discovered again the wonder and the truth of the Psalms. That the heavens are declaring the glory of God, that the earth is his handiwork, and that creation itself is a source of healing and renewal and restoration. I hope you had a chance to be outside and to be healed as you're surrounded by God's good earth. And here's the last thing, and this will be the launching off point, I think, for today's message and for a new series. We've been reminded again that we can hope for stability and we can yearn for security, but we have to be prepared for exactly the opposite. We are not in control. The world has been hobbled, reduced to its knees by a microscopic virus. We are not in control. That awareness either induces panic or invites us into a new posture where we find refuge and strength in the one who is. So those were just kind of a few reflections on the way that we have been traveling for the past 18 months. And this is, a, I think, a metaphor that I stumbled upon this week in a conversation with a, with a friend. The, fa- the past 18 months, it's kind of felt like we have been navigating our way down a choppy river from inside a rubber canoe. Why a rubber canoe? Because maybe we come close to tipping, maybe it feels like we're about to sink, but the fact that it's made of rubber means that we cannot, we will not, we do not. For 21 centuries, this has been true of the church, like a rubber canoe. (laughs) At times, it's felt like, like the waters have threatened to swamp it under, but it's not our church. It belongs to God, and God has seen fit to protect it and preserve it and nourish it and discipline it and stretch it and grow it for his good purposes in the world. And that's that's certainly been the case for these past many months. Long before the church was called the church, you know, long before followers of Jesus were called Christians, they were called people of the way or followers of of the way. That's where we get the title for this new fall series that we launched today. We are people of the way. Let me give you a few examples. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 2, it says, Saul, this is before he went through that dramatic conversion. Saul, soon to be the Apostle Paul, Saul went to the high priest. Acts 9.2, and asked that high priest for letters written to all the synagogues in Damascus. Why? He was looking for people who belonged to, and here it is, the way. Who was he looking for? The followers of Jesus, people of the way. Acts 24.14, later, after his conversion, Paul says, I admit freely that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of, and here it is again, the way. 
That description of the church that occurs again and again in the New Testament and in, in lots of other literature outside of the New Testament probably is rooted in the teachings and the words of Jesus himself. You remember how he said in that, that beautiful clandestine midnight conversation, he said, I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The followers of Jesus, they held on to that promise. And before they ever adopted the name Christian, they called themselves the people of the way. So there you have it, people of the way. Probably actually a, a very appropriate description for the people of God. Reminds us that we are a people on the move, that we are a people in the process of becoming. That the church that bears the name of Jesus ought to be dynamic and winsome and energetic as it moves and engages society. We are people of the way. And for the next six weeks, we are going to explore different dimensions of what that means. And we're going to do that at this moment in the life of our world where we find ourselves kind of at a crossroads. We're looking back and learning from what's been. We're looking forward, trying to anticipate what may be. And as we stand at the crossroads, I want us to be able to discover some ancient wisdom, some ancient practices to take on the journey as we move forward as people of the way. And I want to give you this verse. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open it to Jeremiah in chapter 6, verse 16. We're going to come back to this verse again and again through the series. This is kind of the theme verse for what we're doing. Jeremiah six sixteen. Read these words with me. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is. And walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Again, the theme verse for our series. I hope you'll commit it to memory. I hope you'll return to it often. Ask where the good way is. Aspire to walk in it. Ask God to use these messages to add maybe a little bit of bounce to your step, depth to your faith, rest to your soul's purpose for your days. That's what we're going to be doing. And we're going to turn to to today's teaching as we introduce the first part of that series of understanding what it means to be people of the way. And as we do that, let me invite you to join me as we pray. And we say, God, would would you come and work in our lives? Wherever this message finds us, at whatever crossroads we may be, We want to commit ourselves to this pathway of learning and becoming, knowing, God, that that you are always on the move, that you're out there ahead of us, inviting us to follow, that you're there beside us, accompanying us on the journey, that you are the ground under our feet, supporting us as we walk. Be with us now as we begin the road together as people of the way. Amen. Many times people believe that being a Christian 
is mostly about holding on to a set of ideas, about professing the right beliefs. But it's not, or certainly it's not just that. One of the great illusions among people of faith is that information alone leads to transformation, that if somehow you can get the right information into people's heads, that it happens. Now, information is important, but it's not sufficient, and it's not transforming. That's why it fascinates me that in the days of the very early church, that the name given to this community that formed around Jesus is that they were followers of the way. They didn't call themselves believers in the creed or professors of the belief. Now, creeds are important. What you believe is important. And sometimes in the New Testament, they were called believers. But here's what's interesting. In the New Testament, the language in which it's written, the word for belief, the word for trust, same word. And so anytime you see it, you could translate it, in fact, that these were the people who trusted in Jesus. To believe means to trust in Jesus and to follow in his way. And the way that they followed him is described in beautiful detail, particularly in the book of Acts and particularly in Acts chapter 2. And we're going to spend some time there in this series. But over the next six weeks, I invite you to think of this as a kind of pathway. We are people of the way, on a pathway, a pathway, a framework for understanding what it means to live our lives together as disciples and students and learners and apprentices of Jesus. And it's going to involve a a set of practices, steps taken directly from the pages of the New Testament. We've called it, we've called the series People of the Way, and each week We're going to dig out one of those practices. And I'm going to invite you at the very outset to make a commitment to be here from the beginning to the end. And if for some reason there is a Sunday that you cannot be here, either in person or joining us online, all the messages get archived on YouTube and they, they get produced as podcasts and available on, on Podbeam and uh, iTunes and all kinds of other places. And you can find them through our website. But I invite you to journey with us through these six weeks to live with these truths and these steps. And if you miss one, to, to catch up before you join us with the next one. I can imagine you as you're watching this, Uh, those who are in the room, nicely attired, Uh, those who are at home, uh, maybe less so, (laughs) maybe still in your pajama bottoms, but still respectable looking. In fact, probably far too respectable looking for a series like this. I'm going to invite you to go ahead and work up some problems this week so that you can come back messier as we really get into the service, or into the series. I mean, because this is true. Uh, we're good people, right? I mean, we, we think of ourselves that way. We want to be good people, but we're never just one thing. Maybe we think of ourselves as decent people, good stock, but we're also liars and cheats and gossips 
and failed parents and cranks and greedy and needy and anxious and proud. And, and we can't afford to live our lives in pretense. It just, we can't. And I'm going to tell you honestly that what will make this series useful, allow God to use it in your life, is not mainly what happens during the Sunday message. I'm going to try and make the messages as clear and as helpful and as spiritually practical as I can. But what happens best and makes it most useful is what happens in between the messages. It's always been that way for the followers of Jesus. Again, because this is not just about information. It's about transformation. It's about following. And so I'm going to encourage you in this. If you are not already linked in, to a small group in the life of our church. Can I invite you to use this week as the opportunity to begin that, to experiment with it over the next six weeks? It's going to be important that you find a person or some people to talk with. How's it going along the way? What are you learning? Where are you getting hung up? How are you experiencing God at work in your life? Ask them to pray for you and commit to pray for them. Learn about this stuff together. I invite you to do that. And maybe for some of you who might not be fully ready, um, let me say, I understand. And we'll talk about that actually as one of the weeks in the series. Why that might be important and hopefully tantalize you and challenge you and encourage you. And let me be clear also at the beginning that the goal for us in doing this is not that at the end of the six weeks we cross a finish line and we're all done, and then we put this aside and move on to the next topic. There are steps, there are practices, there is a life that is grounded in Scripture. And it's been useful and tested and helpful to followers through all of the centuries. And it is a lifelong guide. We are on the way And maybe it begins or begins in a fresh way. But it is a journey that that we remain on throughout this life until we reach that final destination. Today I want to deal uh, just in, in an introductory way with the foundation. The ground for everything else that we will learn and do. And I promise you this, that that if you don't get this one right, everything else is going to kind of mess you up because it's just going to feel like a bunch of self-help steps. And the last thing that you really need in your life is is another self-help program. So if you want, if you were to summarize this first step, this foundational step, if you were to do it in two words, here it is. Give up. Give up. Uh, And that's not meant to be a statement of futility. It's a conscious choice to surrender. To surrender your life and your will fully to God. And if you're looking for the most succinct and beautiful and prayerful expression of that foundational truth, you will find it in arguably the most famous prayer of all time, the one we call the Lord's Prayer, in a single phrase, in Matthew 6, in verse 10, where Jesus says, Your will be done. 
That's how we pray. That's the life blood of a disciple. Your will be done. As it is in heaven, so it is here in me. Your will be done. And we're going to carry that prayer with us today. So let me invite you to say those words with me together. Your will be done. Will you say that? Your will be done. The amazing thing about the prayer is that you can pray at any time. When you're frustrated because you're, in your traf- you're caught in a traffic jam and you can't control it, your will be done. When you're worried about one of your kids because you can't control your kids, your will be done. When you're mad at your spouse because you can't control your spouse, your will be done. When you're mad because you don't have a spouse and you can't control that, your will be done. When your computer crashes, when you didn't get into that school, when you didn't get the promotion, when you're hoping that she'd say yes and she said no, when she said yes and later you realize you hoped that she had said no, when you're worried about money, when you lay dying, your will be done. Something in the universe unlocks when you surrender your will. It's kind of like a key to a door, somebody wrote. A door that opens almost by itself, and inside we see a pathway with an inscription that reads, this is the way that faith works, and it does work. And I'll tell you what's so amazing about this prayer and why we need it so much. I've been a follower of Jesus long enough, and I am now spiritually mature enough to know that I really only have two problems. Some of you have lots of them, but of course, I'm the mature one. I only have two problems. One of them is I do all kinds of things that I know I ought not to do and that deep down I don't want to do. That's one problem. Here's the other one. There's a lot of things that I know I ought to do that I leave undone. Anybody else have any of those problems? Those two? I say, don't eat that, and then I eat it. I say, don't drink that, and then I go ahead and drink it. Don't look at that site. Don't wimp out. Don't procrastinate. Don't brag. Don't envy. Don't yell at the kids. Don't say you look just like your mother. And then those words come out of my mouth. The Apostle Paul put it this way, Romans 7.15, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. What I hate, I do. I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. That's the Apostle Paul. And that's just the human condition. We want to do, most of the time, what's good. But we are absolutely prepared to do what's wrong if we feel like we need to do it to get what we want. And most people think that the way of responding to this, the way of becoming a better follower of Jesus, is just to try harder. Try harder to be like Jesus. Try harder to obey God. Try harder to be a better person. Let me tell you, as any addict would tell you, And whether or not you identify yourself as an addict, all of us are subject to what the Bible calls idolatries. We get attached to the wrong stuff. That's addiction. Any addict will tell you that you come to a place where trying harder just doesn't get it done. 
There is my will, what I want, getting my own way. And then there is the right thing, doing what's good, what's noble, what's beautiful and generous and courageous and true. And how many of you have found that doing things your way, getting what you want, and doing what's noble, beautiful, bright, good and true, that they don't always line up? Reality, including spiritual reality, exists even when I don't like to acknowledge that it's there. And it's almost like goodness and truthfulness. They're like spiritual realities that that flow through the world. And when I surrender my will, I'm saying, I'm no longer just trying to get my own way. But I'm placing my life in the hands, in a current, in a spiritual current that flows through the world. In a current that that will carry me in the direction of what's good and honorable and true. And suddenly I'm moving with a power far greater than myself. And I'm going to suggest to you in this series that nobody has ever lived it, modeled it, taught it, identified it with greater clarity than Jesus. And he expresses it over and over again. He does it beautifully. He does it with words like these ones from Matthew 26, or sorry, Matthew 16. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must what? Must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And then he invites you to run the experiment. He says in the next verse, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever gives up their life for my sake will find it. And I know there's lots of confusion about what those verses mean. What does it mean to take up your cross? It simply means this, that my desires, that what I want are no longer my ultimate goal in life. That I yield those things to a higher purpose. And I want to do what God expects me to do. I want to be what God invites me to be. I want his will for me to line up with my will for my life. I want to live in the center of his will and purpose. It's fascinating, you know, that 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 first step, the step of surrender, is a step that was discovered, rediscovered really, over a century ago by something called the Oxford Movement. The Oxford movement was trying to address some of the rampant problems in their lives and in society, particularly around the idolatries of our lives that so plague us and trip us up. And so they put together a series of steps grounded faithfully in Scripture. Here were the first three steps. They said we we had to admit to ourselves that despite our best efforts, we were powerless over our own problems, that our lives had become unmanageable. Here was the second step. But we came to believe that there was a power greater than ourselves that could restore us to sanity if we let him. And then step three, and here was the critical one. We made the decision to turn over our will and our lives to the care of God. And that discovery, that rediscovery, was summarized in three great phrases. And I'm going to invite you to say them with me in a moment. moment. But here they are. 
I can't. God can. And I think I'll let him. Would you say that with me? I can't. God can. I think I'll let him. The Oxford movement would gain traction in the world, would go on to become the basis for all of the other self-help movements that, that bear the name Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Offenders Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous. Do you know that the power that is attached to those movements is absolutely rooted in the ancient practice of the followers of Jesus, the people of the way. And in that one foundational step, they surrender. I can't. God can. I think I'll let him. I can't do what? I can't fix myself. I can't fix you. I can't remove my guilt. I can't help that I am a rageaholic or a workaholic, a greedaholic, an imageaholic, or a, a judgmentaholic. I can't give myself a personality transplant. I can't always be the man, the husband, the friend, the father, the person, the pastor that I'm called to be. I can't control my worry or my lust or my longing. I can't. But God can. And I think I'll let him. Have you tried praying that prayer? I can't. God can. I think I'll let him. Have you, have you tried taking that step Honestly, because honestly, a lot of people get hung up here right at the beginning, and we understand why. We are afraid of surrendering surrendering ourselves completely to anything, especially to God. That feels like defeat. It feels like mindless obedience or robotic conformity, but it's not, not at all. Your will Your will is precious to God. And in surrendering it, it doesn't disappear. What happens is it it gets amped up. It it gets retooled. It gets relaunched. Some of you might remember there was a movie that came out years ago, I think the 70s or so. It was called The Stepford Wives. The community of Stepford, the men are mostly high-tech workers, and their wives behave very strangely. They were ecstatic about baking and cleaning the house. They gathered together in little cliques to exchange recipes and coo over each other's clean floors. They had no opinions. They never argued or complained. They lived solely to make their husbands' lives grander and more comfortable. Some of you are nodding, saying it sounds like a paradise. It wasn't. It was a horror show. And what that movie, silly in its premise, but what that silly movie and its sequels, because they made the Stepford Husbands and the Stepford Kids, what that movie shows to be profoundly true is that a world filled with persons, persons with real will and real choice, even with all of its pain, is infinitely better than a world with no pain but also no real persons. A Stepford world might be a world where there is no pain or conflict or animosity, where all suffering is gone, but it's a nightmare because there are no real persons and there is no real meaning. And that is not the world that God created. God doesn't want robotic conformity. He doesn't want drones and clones. God wants persons. The kingdom 
Kingdom life is intensely personal. God wants persons, creative, intelligent, who freely surrender will, knowing that it's returned to them in a grander way. However, having said that, none of that, free will is the great gift of God, none of that changes the fact that God is God, and I am not God. And one of that things, one of the things that that means is that, is that it's precisely my selfish, unsurrendered, self-centered, self-promoting, self-absorbed will that causes so many problems for me and for the people that surround me. At least that's the way it seems. Uh, if I'm honest, uh, there are times when I really want my own little Stepford world where everybody does what I want behaves the way that I would expect, gives me what I need. I want a Stepford spouse. I want Stepford children. I want a Stepford job. Boy, I sure would love to serve in a Stepford church. But that immediately puts me on a collision course because so does everybody else in the world, and they have their own will, and maybe they see it differently. So the bad news is I can't. And the good news is that God can. And the real question is, have you let him? And that's the foundation. I can't, God can. Have you let him? I think I'll let him. God has, has given the alcoholic power to be sober. If they let him. Not just that. God can give a greedy, corrupt tax collector, a man like Zacchaeus, the power to become a poster boy for generosity. God can give a frightened failure like Simon, the power to become a courageous leader, a pillar in the early church like Peter. God can change the life of a hater named Peter, or named Saul, into a lover of God's people named Paul. And it's Paul who said, I can do all things. How? Through God, who strengthens me. I can't, but God can, if I let him. We think of surrender as this weak act for weak-minded people. But the great spiritual discovery, the reality that is revealed by Jesus and seen by Paul and experienced by, by countless thousands and millions over the centuries, is that surrender is actually the pathway to power. And maybe you felt that. I hope you have. I know I have at times in my life. When I wanted to snap in anger. Or when I wanted to withhold in apathy. Or I wanted to withdraw and practice my own little spiritual gift of pouting. And a little voice says, no, no, not that way. My way. Of course, our egos are going to give us all kinds of reasons why we shouldn't do this. And I might miss out on the things that I think I really want if I did that, if I surrender to God. And maybe we think, well, God is going to turn us into something ridiculous, make us some kind of monk or missionary or pastor, something awful like that. That I'd be unable to think for myself anymore. I live in chronic deprivation, never enjoying the things that I really want, never going to have any real gratification, that I, that I become a doormat 
a weak and dependent personality. But you know, it actually works the other way around. If I'm dependent on God, then I'm no longer dependent on money or status for my security. I'm not dependent on attractiveness for my worth. I'm not dependent on circumstances for my peace. I'm not dependent on your approval for my confidence. The more I depend on God, the more independent I actually become in real life. Let's take just one little step deeper and then we'll close. In Luke's version of these words of Jesus, Luke adds one very helpful little word to this idea of surrender. In Luke chapter 9, in verse 23, Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. But here's the word. Daily. Must take up their cross daily and follow me. People sometimes wonder, this this faith thing, this coming to Jesus thing, is that a a once-for-all-time deal? Well, there has to be a once. There has to be a first time. You don't just drift into it. So yes, there is a once. But then, it's all of the time. It's every day, and here's why. Here's the thing about my will. I turn it over to God. (laughs) But then I try and take it right back again. I turn it over, I take it back. I turn it over, here you are, God, and then I take it back. I think I've surrendered my will. I think I've surrendered my time until somebody wants it. I think I've surrendered my money until somebody needs it. I think maybe I've surrendered my circumstances until they don't suit me. Or I think that I've surrendered my will until somebody crosses it. And then watch as the anger bubbles inside. So I'm never done with this prayer. It's part of the beauty of the prayer. It's, It's why it's the foundation of our lives. And you can pray it all day long and it will never cease to energize you. It will never cease to fill you up. It's kind of like breathing. It is the oxygen of the life of the follower of Jesus. It is respiration for people of the way. I can't. God can. I think I'll let him. Your will be done. So let me say to all of you, welcome to the way. Here we go. And it all begins with the surrender of our lives. It's the foundation And if this week you find that surrender is hard for you, and it will be, and if it it pushes back, and it will, I want you to know that you're not alone, and you don't do this alone. And I want to invite you, I want to give you a chance to surrender today. To try and drop a marker at this stage in your life. Maybe for some of you, this will be the first marker. Maybe you've never deliberately turned over your will and your life to God. And this is a vital spiritual moment for you. Here's the question. Do you take this man? Feels like a wedding, doesn't it? In a sense, it is. Do you take this man, Jesus, 
to be your forgiver and your friend and your shepherd and your guide and your leader and your Lord. If not him, who else? What else? And if you do, I want to invite you as we start this journey together on the way to start it with a decision. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and to close your eyes for just a moment. And if you never have before, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me. God, I can't. I can't save my own life. I can't earn my way through. I can't transform myself. But God, you can. You can forgive that which is broken in me. You can enter into my mind and my thoughts and my desires and my life. You can guide me through your spirit. You can make me into a new person. I can't. But you can. And in this moment, I let you, I invite you. Today, I turn my life over to you and I place my will into your care. And for all of us, we want to say, God, thank you that, that you're in the life-transforming business. Thank you for the way that you intervene and enrich our lives. For those of you who may have made a decision in these moments, encourage you not to remain silent. To find a way of connecting with another person on the way. Maybe you have those people in your life. If you don't, we would love to help get you connected. You can reach out. You can send a note to the church, to any of its pastors, to anybody that you've met here along the way. Don't, don't keep this to yourself. For others, maybe maybe you didn't make the decision today. You're not quite ready. Again, we want to invite you just to keep coming back. And for still others, maybe you've done this before, but you need a fresh new signpost along the way. Maybe it's happening in a particular area of your life, in a relationship or a habit or a desire let this be a fresh new beginning. And you say, God, I'm surrendering my life to you. And over these next six weeks, I'm all in. I'm devoted. I'm going to surrender my time to you and figure out what it means to walk together on this journey. For all of us, we take this prayer with us into the new week. Your will be done. Your will be done. Your will be done. Amen.